December 2nd, 1945. World War II has just ended, and the Cold War is just beginning. As such, the United States is firing on all cylinders to get its soldiers and pilots ready and trained, just in case another conflict erupts. To this end, US Navy Flight 19, a group of five torpedo bombers, is flying off the eastern coast of Florida. The flight's led by Lieutenant James Taylor, who's got over two and a half thousand hours of flight times in these kinds of planes alone. Taylor's going over his notes one last time beside his groom and TBF Avenger. They're reliable planes, clunky, but favorites of Navy pilots, and he knows this machine well. His flight consists of 14 men in total. He's the leader on this exercise, but far from a few of the men have had experience in planes. Only a small number are relative rookies. Now, each plane is fully fueled, but they don't have their own clocks. The exercise is supposed to teach pilots to manage their own time and train them in dead reckoning skills. They set off at 10 past 2 in the afternoon and things seem to be going well. The weather seems fine, at least to start, rough seas being the only indication of anything that might be amiss. Then the problems start. At first, comms go quiet. Eventually, Taylor radios the fellow pilots. He and his flight are lost and they can't find their way back. The conversations are intermittent and seemed very strained, Taylor and his flight being slow to respond to questions asked of them. Those tracking the flight start to wonder. Taylor is experienced, as are a number of his men in his flight, and these waters aren't exactly uncharted territory. Whilst flying over the sea can be difficult, how have they managed to get this disoriented? Then, a sudden move surprises those that are tracking them. The trainee pilots want to fly west, but Taylor orders a change of course due east, taking them further out to sea, and one of the trainees laments that they can't fly west. This only serves to confuse those on the ground even more. Why can't they fly west? Moreover, some of the pilots talked as describing the sea as an unusual shade of green, and that they can't see the white rolling surf that you'd usually be able to. Now, the radio contact gets more and more intermittent. It's clear that the pilots are further out to sea than anyone anticipated. After a final call for a weather check at 5.24, the flight goes quiet. Just after 6, the last transmission comes in. Taylor instructs his pilots to prepare to ditch into the sea. The ground parties, both the naval monitoring stations and those roped in to try to track the desperate airmen, are alarmed. This was a simple training mission, totally routine. How has it gone so badly off the rails? How did the men get so badly lost so easily? None of the 14 men have any clue where they are, and they all decided to fly further away from the land? And now they're ditching in the sea. The last received message stated the intention to all go down together when the first plane dipped below 10 gallons, but why not go for broke? It's obvious Taylor wanted to make the group as big as possible, but the decision still seems weird. And the only thing that was clear at this time was that the rescue crews needed to act fast. Even in the Caribbean, cold water saps your strength, and between the tides, currents, and wildlife, it's nothing short of inhospitable for those in a compromised position. A search party was scrambled, but none of the men nor their planes were ever found. All in all, 14 men were lost, and a further 13 when one of the search planes mysteriously exploded during the rescue attempt. Despite all the resources of the US Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard, and intelligence services, 14 men and millions of dollars of equipment vanished into thin air right off of their doorstep. These disappearances and deaths were just some of the many that occurred in an area off the coast of the United States in the Sargasso Sea, the Bermuda Triangle.
Hello and welcome to Demystified with me, Ashley Styles. Now, I'm sure that story was quite tantalizing for you guys, the mystery of Flight 19 and the Bermuda Triangle, and there's a lot to unpack here, but I should start with a little bit of disclosure. I consider myself to be on the skeptical side of things. Don't get me wrong, I absolutely love to suspend my disbelief where I can. It makes things, stories like this and life in general, so much more entertaining. But I know BS when I see it, and the Bermuda Triangle, for me, kind of fits the bill. As a result, this episode is going to look a lot like me debunking the Bermuda Triangle, but there are still some genuinely fascinating stories and mysteries to get into before all is said and done. With that bit of skeptic cred established, let's get into the suspension of disbelief. What even is the Bermuda Triangle? I'm sure everybody has heard of it. It's very famous in popular culture, but where is it? So take the island of Bermuda in British Overseas Territory, Miami, Florida, and San Juan, Puerto Rico, and draw a triangle between those three points. That's the Bermuda Triangle. Now, this definition isn't universal, but it is just the most commonly used one. It was created by writer Vincent Gaddis when writing about it in a pulp magazine, Argozi, in 1964. Other quote-unquote estimates put the triangle as being anywhere from 1.3 to 3.9 million square kilometers. Some people say that it stretches all the way to Ireland, but let's be real. If somebody tells me, ooh, I heard a story of a ship that disappeared somewhere between Miami and Ireland, I'd say, yeah, that's the Atlantic Ocean. It's big. Ships disappear. That's not particularly interesting. Now, what is interesting about the Bermuda Triangle is that most of its more famous disappearances occurred before the concept was actually created. Flight 19, for example, disappeared in 1945. The idea of the Bermuda Triangle, before it was named as such in 1964, was first explored in 1950 in the Miami Herald. That article, written by one Edward Van Winkle Jones, merely discussed the various strange disappearances off the Florida coast. It would be a 1952 article discussing, amongst other disappearances, the Flight 19 case that laid out the now traditionally understood boundaries of what would then later be referred to as the Bermuda Triangle. Several other articles over the next few decades covered Flight 19 as the concept crystallized, with more and more details being added to the story. One article suggests that the flight leader said that the sea was green, which is what I mentioned in the story earlier, and another alleged that a military official had stated that the planes, quote, flew off to Mars. Then we get our 64 article and 65 book by Gaddis creating the now famous phrase, Bermuda Triangle. Let's now outline some of the incidents that are accepted as part of the Bermuda Triangle canon. There are absolutely loads of incidents that could be attributed to the Bermuda Triangle, but for the sake of keeping this episode under several hours, we just gotta stick to the canonical ones. The earliest one that's usually included in the list is the Ellen Austin. In this case, the crew of the Ellen Austin in 1881 found a derelict ship without the crew. They put a crew on board to tow it in, but that also disappeared along with its prize crew. So two disappearances for the price of one. Then comes one of the big ones. The USS Cyclops went missing, resulting in the biggest single loss of life out of combat in the US Navy's history up to that time. 309 men went missing in 1918, and the Cyclops' sister ships disappeared during World War II, so in a span of about 30 years, all three ships within that minor class went missing. In 1921, the ship Carol A. Deering was found wrecked and abandoned off the coast of North Carolina. Another ship, the Hewitt, was also implicated in the movements of the Deering at the time, and also disappeared. Then comes Flight 19. 
five U.S. Navy TBM Avenger torpedo bombers disappear and are never recovered in 1945. Thirteen men in a PBM Mariner also disappeared, with some reporting seeing a similar-looking craft exploding. Then, in 1948 and 49, two planes operated by British South American Airways disappeared flying from the Azores to Bermuda and then Bermuda to Jamaica, respectively. In 1948, a Douglas DC-3 disappeared and it, along with its 32 crew and passengers, were never found. The flight path? Puerto Rico to Miami. Then the Connemara 4, a pleasure yacht, was found adrift but with no crew in 1955. The usual tellings of the story report that the ship survived three hurricanes of that season and was found south of Bermuda, having last seen being moored in Barbados. Finally, in 1963, two US refueling aircraft collided and crashed 300 miles west of Bermuda. So that's our canonical list. These range from the spurious to the plausible in terms of whether the disappearances could be considered mysterious. Most of those outside of this list tend to be more on the spurious end, and given the Bermuda Triangle is so often associated with the more out there of the disappearing mythos, we lose a lot of actual evidence in favour of just stories. So here's some explanations for why these disappearances may have happened. What is the secret to the Bermuda Triangle? Now, let's begin with some of the more famous criticisms of the idea of the Bermuda Triangle. Larry Kush, in his 1975 book, The Bermuda Triangle Mystery Solved, explained that, statistically, the Bermuda Triangle has no more disappearances on average than any other part of ocean in the world. That's right, you might as well have the Hong Kong Triangle, or the Easter Island Triangle, or the Blackpool Triangle. If you take any triangular slice of the ocean that sized, he argues that, statistically, you're going to get the same amount of mysterious happenings. This was corroborated by a 2013 study by the Worldwide Fund for Nature, which created a list of the most dangerous shipping lanes in areas in the world. The Bermuda Triangle didn't even crack the top 10. Lloyds of London and the US Coast Guard both agreed that the Bermuda Triangle is no more dangerous for sinkings or disappearances than anywhere else. And I should point out Lloyds is an insurance company. They don't charge higher rates for ships travelling through that area, and if it was supposedly begging to have a disappearance happen based on its historical reputation, they would charge a higher rate. But the statistics tell a different story. There's also the fact that whilst the disappearance of a ship might go reported, its later reappearance might not go reported, which is what Kush argues in a number of the cases that I haven't listed in that canonical grouping. A lot of the other cases, it happened that when Kush was researching, he found ships would disappear and that would be in the news. But then later there would be a tiny little correction that said, oh, by the way, we found it again and it was fine that nobody would read. And so everybody would be raving, oh, his ship disappeared. But in actuality, that wasn't even the case. Now, let's go into each of these cases individually. We've explored earlier. They each have an alternative explanation. So the USS Cyclops was carrying a cargo of manganese ore. When its two sister ships sunk, they were also carrying heavy loads of metal ore similar to the Cyclops. The conclusion of the Navy findings was therefore that that class of ship was unable to lift the loads that they were eventually tasked with and sank as a result. Structural failure due to wartime overloading with a much denser cargo than was intended for that kind of ship. Now, for the Deering, rumours at the time of its disappearance hinted that both the Deering and the Hewitt, remember the other ship that was there at the time, were both involved in rum running during the Prohibition and had fallen victim of piracy. Now, that's just from the basic research that I've done. I don't know exactly how much evidence backs up that assertion, but that's the common alternate explanation. Personally, I think that's absolutely fascinating. So the time, if we go back a little bit as in 1920s, definitely in Prohibition off North Carolina, 
there's going to be rum running. You're in range of the Caribbean. The Caribbean is still producing rum at this time. Cuba doesn't have an embargo against it. None of the British colonies, Jamaica, Barbados, all of these big rum producing areas that are going to be cranking out absolutely bucket loads of alcohol. That's going to be lucrative market. That's free real estate for rum runners. So doubtless there's going to be counts of people trying to smuggle rum. And when you're trying to smuggle something under the black market, piracy is much more common because remember, you're not relying on the protection of something like the Coast Guard. If a pirate comes for your ship, you're not exactly going to fire a warning flare or go, mayday, mayday, Coast Guard, come right to me. I'm carrying a big cargo with illegal supplies. I'm doing a crime. Please help me from this other crime. You're going to try and deal with it yourself. And if that doesn't work, well, then you're going to get boarded. The crew might be taken captive, maybe they were killed, and the ships were just found derelict. That's a possible explanation. Now we get to the big one, Flight 19. The usual explanation is simply that the aircraft got lost and ran out of fuel. The search plane exploded, as PBM Mariners did actually have a history of exploding due to fuel vapour leakages. But this story is the one that catches my attention, because I'm not wholly satisfied with the idea that the flight of five planes and 14 men simply got lost and ran out of fuel and that as a result no bodies nor planes were ever found. The Avengers were reliable planes, clunky, they were described as flying like trucks, for better or worse, but mechanical failure was unlikely. That being said, the flight was a training flight, even though most of the pilots did have experience, if the lead pilot, Taylor, had made a mistake, the others would probably have just followed him, so it would have only taken his failure to doom the whole flight. And the Atlantic is big. If they couldn't report their positions accurately, then the search efforts would be needle in a haystack levels of difficult. But that's the one that kind of gets me. That's the one that sticks out to me as, ooh, maybe there is a mystery here, purely because all of those men, 27 in total, 14 on the original flight, and millions of dollars of equipment just go missing? And the US government just can't find it off the coast right in their backyard? Nothing? That's what gets me. Now, with the two BSAA flights, the two planes at the time, this is the uh, 1940s one, the two flights going from the Azores to Bermuda and Bermuda to Jamaica, the two planes were Avro Tudor 4s, type of plane at the time, commercial plane, and for both of those flight paths, they were at the very edges of their flight ranges, meaning that even the tiniest fault in mechanics or navigation error would completely leave them out in the cold. Basically, they were fueled up to just as much as they could carry for that sort of flight, and they were at the absolute maximum long distance haul they could do, so if anything went wrong, they would crash. So that's that explanation, that they were really cutting it fine, rolled the dice, and they lost the draw. The 1948 Douglas disappearance has a whole bunch of explanations, but nothing conclusive was decided due to the lack of evidence found within the crash debris, or lack thereof. Some of the evidence suggests that the craft was airworthy, but with the crew and aircraft were certified, the aircraft didn't actually meet their so-called operating certificates. So basically, on the ground, the crew and the aircraft had certification, but the aircraft didn't actually meet the standards of its certification. Captain Linquist, the captain of the plane, told San Juan Airport ahead of time that his landing gear down indicator lamps didn't work. This led to the discovery that his batteries were low on water and electrical charges. While he ordered the refilling of the batteries with water, he ordered the reinstallation on board the aircraft without actually recharging them. The aircraft, left with batteries charged only enough to satisfy two-way radio communication with the tower, with the understanding that an in-flight flight plan would be filed before they left the vicinity of San Juan. But they didn't do that, and the plane went on a course for Miami. It was noted in the continued 
plans and the reports that the plane's radio transmitter didn't function properly due to the low battery charge. So they didn't charge the batteries properly. They said, okay, we'll have just enough to communicate with the tower in San Juan. And then they didn't have enough charge anyway. And when they did have enough charge, they didn't bother to communicate. The aircraft left San Juan with a cargo passenger weight, which was 118 pounds over the allowable limit for that weight class. A message was sent to the plane concerning a change in wind direction that could have been strong enough to push the plane off course. It was not known if they received the message because the batteries were down. The electrical systems weren't functioning properly. And finally, the aircraft had fuel for seven and a half hours of flight. At the time of the last transmission, the flight had gone on for six hours and 10 minutes and thus any error in location, like with the Tudor Avros, would basically be catastrophic. So for me, that one is pretty much solved. The only reason it's a disappearance is because they didn't find a wreckage, but we have all of that information from ahead of time. I think we can piece two and two together on that one. Now, the Connemara 4 could have been explained with the following letter that Richard Weiner, author of the 1970 The Devil's Triangle, received from Mr. J.E. Chalinor of Barbados. Quote, on the morning of September 22nd, Connemara 4 was lying to a heavy mooring in the open roadstead of Carlisle Bay. Because of the approaching hurricane, the owner strengthened the mooring ropes and put on two additional anchors. There was little else he could do, as the exposed mooring was the only available anchorage in Carlisle Bay. The sea in the wake of Hurricane Janet was awe-inspiring and dangerous. The owner of the Connemara 4 observed that she had disappeared, and an investigation revealed that she had dragged her moorings out and gone to sea. So... It wasn't actually the case with the Connemara 4 that she had disappeared with all hands and was found with nobody on board. She didn't have anybody on board. She was moored. There was no crew. It was just that the winds of the hurricane were strong enough that they dragged the moorings out, pulled the anchors out, and pushed the ship out to sea. That's why it floated away. So no actual mystery there. Finally, there's the 1963 fuel plane crash. The initial report speculated that two separate wreckages were found from the same crash hundreds of miles apart. Is that not suspicious? If they crashed together, surely there would be one wreckage. But the declassified report on the incident showed that what was thought to be a second crash site was actually just driftwood and seaweed tangled in a lifebuoy. There was, in reality, only one crash site. There is, by the way, one more famous ship that's often linked to the Bermuda Triangle. If you've watched the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you'll know it's the SS Cotopaxi. She disappeared in 1925 en route to Charleston, South Carolina from Havana, Cuba. Now, this one is often linked with discussions of aliens in the Bermuda Triangle because of its inclusion in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But the ignored detail of this case is that the last transmission from the Cotopaxi indicated that the ship was sinking imminently. So the fact that the disappearance is usually attributed to aliens is just nothing. Now, one interesting broader theory for some of these disappearances is methane bubbles. Basically, undersea continental tectonic shelves, which is where the two plates of continents meet, and they either go into each other or they crush each other. Uh, you'll study it in geography class. They produce methane hydrates, a form of natural gas. This gas forms bubbles which can drastically alter the density of water, which has been shown in scaled experiments to be capable of sinking a ship extremely rapidly, without warning, perhaps. The wreckages could then be dispersed on the Gulf Stream, which is the strong surface currents that in this case flow from the Gulf of Mexico out into the Atlantic past Florida, leaving no evidence of a disappeared ship or a crashed plane. But these things are never as simple as I'd like them to be. 
Whilst this theory has been tested on scale models, there isn't sufficient evidence to establish that this is likely for any of the aforementioned cases, especially the flying planes. In fact, the area of the Bermuda Triangle hasn't actually experienced a large-scale methane hydrate release in 1500 years, as far as we know. The area is also home to a significant number of hurricanes, not unusual due to its proximity to the Caribbean and position within the path of hurricanes travelling to the Americas from Africa. Hot air currents mixed with cold over the Atlantic carry by the warm coastal seas of the Caribbean. Another interesting theory, by the way, related to the hurricanes, is air bombs. Compressed air carried on strangely shaped clouds formed by sudden shifts in air temperature. James Lusheen of the National Hurricane Center postulated that sudden drops in temperature could cause extremely powerful downward bursts of air, maybe even strong enough to sink a vessel at up to 170 miles an hour apiece. It's definitely worth thinking about. A sudden downburst of air was the supposed cause of the Pride of Baltimore's 1986 sinking. The crew noted a sudden increase in wind speed from 20 miles an hour to as high as 90 in a very short time span which threw the ship into disarray, so that's a possibility. Amateur sailors may also be thrown by compass navigation. Now, magnetic north and true north only align in a very small number of places, making even basic compass navigation at sea quite tricky. Thus, when the general public hear reports of changing compasses in the Bermuda Triangle, this is more often a natural side effect of a ship moving between areas of stronger and weaker magnetic current. There's also human error. Human error is the most commonly cited cause of loss of aircraft and sailing vessels in all cases across all of time. It's something that's so easy to discount. When I was talking about the Mary Celeste in some of these places, I say in my descriptions, why would they make this decision, that decision, or the other decision? It doesn't make sense. And things not making sense is a very crucial part of what makes a mystery a mystery. But oftentimes, people will just do things that don't make sense. Sometimes there is no reason. Or there is a reason, but there's no logic to that reason. So there you have it. For all of those circumstances that I mentioned, there's a possible alternate explanation. So, with all of this considered, it sure looks like a whole lot of nothing to me. The Bermuda Triangle is statistically home to exactly 0% more mysterious disappearances than any other part of the ocean, and whilst it does have some, most have logical explanations. So why is the Bermuda Triangle so well known? The answer here lies in a very important thread for modern mythology, hence why I actually wanted to do this episode so early on. Media and culture. Bermuda Triangle is a really catchy name. It sells pulp magazines, books, TV shows, online articles, mugs, placemats, t-shirts, anything you can think of. Think about Bermuda. If the first word you associated with, with that is triangle, nobody's shocked. Bonus points for Bermuda Shorts, Bermuda Sloop, or Bermuda Overseas Territory. The bottom line is basically what our old pal Larry Cush concluded back in the 70s, that the Bermuda Triangle is a manufactured myth. The more famous accounts of each and every mystery often change or misrepresent details, like the crash sites of the Douglases, the plane ranges of the Avro Tudors, the sinking of the Cotopaxi, the cargo of the Cyclops, the list goes on. With the Flight 19, we're supposed to believe in a throwaway line that was unconfirmed about the sea being green with no white, proving that the planes were teleported to an alternate dimension. The sea is green literally all of the time, and if you're blue-green colorblind, it might never be blue to you. And admittedly, you probably wouldn't be a Navy pilot if that was the case, but point notwithstanding. And when that Navy official said that the planes flew off to Mars, he was probably just using a colloquial metaphor to indicate how strange the disappearance was, not being literal. 
Some disappearances cited by triangle enthusiasts are entirely made up. One common one is a plane which apparently clashed in 1937 off of Daytona Beach in Florida with, quote, hundreds of eyewitnesses. But thorough examinations of local and state newspapers at the time and place show that no crash occurred. It'd be newsworthy if it had hundreds of witnesses. What did none of them decide to report it to journalists? Were none of them journalists themselves? That's pretty unlikely. Yes, listeners, it's time to learn the painful truth that will surround a number of these mysteries that they're made up for profit. But I will admit, not every little detail lines up, and that's why we still come back to these mysteries. Flight 19 still baffles me a little, actually. How does a flight of trained Navy pilots in reliable planes get so badly lost that all of them ditch now? I acknowledge that the command from Taylor was, we're all going to go down together, but it still seems weird that they waited for the 10-gallon mark to all make the drop. Why didn't they just go for broke? Planes can glide, right? And how weren't they found? That's the other thing that gets me. There have been a number of suspected findings of planes, but none of them have ever been confirmed by the Navy. They found other Avengers that went down in other planes in various other areas, but they've not found the actual ones or any of the actual bodies. All of that debris, all of that equipment, at a time when the US was at the height of its mobilization and they found nothing, not only for that one, but also for the plane that crashed searching for them. They didn't find anything. Overall, though, that's about it for the Bermuda Triangle. Our first example, right in episode two, that I'd be more than happy to put my money on being absolutely nothing at all. But that's going to be not necessarily the case with all these episodes. Some of them, as we go through these things with modern findings, will turn out to be nothing. Some of them will turn out to be something. And that's the interesting thing. You've got to sift through the ones that are nothing to find the ones that are something. And when you actually find a genuine mystery... That's when it becomes a mystery for the ages. This has been Demystified with Ashley Styles. This episode was written and researched by me, Ashley Styles, and produced by Wizard Studios. Music was provided by ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Thanks for listening.